Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of The Nuclear View, a podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Of course, I am Adam Lowther, and today we have Sam Stanton, Curtis McGiffin, and Jim Petrosky, who are also with the National Institutes of Deterrence Studies. And today's topic is one I think you will all find interesting and enjoyable. And of course, we're going to talk about President Yun of South Korea's recent statement that it may be time for South Korea to have its own nuclear weapons. Now, Sam, if you could go ahead and just open us up on the show today with a brief introduction or background of, of what was said and, and what he was thinking. Yeah, um, back on January the 11th of you know this year, uh, President Yoon was speaking uh, with uh, in a joint policy briefing with uh, defense and foreign ministries and said that if North Korea continued in the trajectory that it was going in building its nuclear forces, that South Korea probably should consider uh, building nuclear weapons of their own or even asking the United States to bring nuclear weapons back into South Korea that we haven't had there since 1991. Uh, don't correct me if I'm wrong on that one. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was kind of a, a startling statement to make on the part of South Korea given the um, memorandum they had signed with North Korea regarding the nuclear status in the peninsula, and given that it would mean they're having to withdraw from the NPT, which would make them the, the first openly democratic state to withdraw from the NPT. So, yeah, it's just an, an interesting situation all around to hear them say that and raises a number of issues and a number of questions for us to consider today. Yeah, thanks for that. It's uh, like you said, it's it's certainly I, I'm sure many folks were shocked to hear that. Uh, but it's also, you know, we, we have to keep in mind that South Korea's had an election we went from President Moon, who was, you know, his party was the, the left of center party. President Yoon is part of the right of center party. And so you're going to have these new administrations having differing positions than their predecessors. And as we think about, you know, a lot of the implications and particularly what we, the United States, may think of it and the implications of it, Curtis, let me ask you, how, how have you seen this play out? Because you've been watching it on Twitter and elsewhere for the last couple of weeks as people have responded and offered 
their thoughts. So, you know, what's your take? Well, thanks, Adam, and 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 thanks, Sam, for being here, and Jim. Um, I, you know, again, I uh, this is this is driving uh, the the community uh, nuts, right? So the the ask is: should we create our own nuclear weapons, or would we ask the U.S. to bring tactical nuclear weapons back to the peninsula? And I think that is uh, it's kind of a two sided question, right? Because are we are, are we asking the U.S. to to do something that it it, it it probably doesn't want to do politically, um, or are we going to, um, you know, quote unquote, allow um, uh, the South Koreans to uh, develop their own nuclear weapons? And I think this is fascinating because there's a, you know, there's a large contingent in the world that, uh, you know, that, that says that, that nuclear weapons are bad, uh, but we've yet seen another country uh, think about proliferating because it is in their national interest. It is something they feel they need to do to guarantee their sovereignty. And we talk about the government. So there was a there was an opinion poll conducted by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs uh, last year that showed that 71% of respondents in, in the South Korean population supported the country making nuclear weapons. Uh, and so this is, this is a pretty significant poll. It's a pretty significant number. And so the question then uh, that, the, that the United States has to ask itself is twofold. And this is kind of what's going on in, in Twitter out there. The first thing is, is, is extended deterrence failing? Is South Korea somehow feel unassured anymore about our nuclear umbrella? And that question, I think, really goes to the argument um, in the current administration's desire to eliminate, say, Slickamen, uh, these a submarine launched or surface launched, uh, sea launched uh, cruise missile nuclear, right? Uh, because that would be an ability to provide that capability to South Korea, but from a shore, from offshore. Uh, and so, by sort of the the tea leaves saying that that may not be a reality, um, nations then who think that they're not going to be uh, protected under the umbrella. Uh, might have to take things into their own hands. But what's exploding on Twitterverse really is is sort of this default uh, idea that, well, if the South Koreans decide to go nuclear, what should the Americans do? And many people say that, it, well, it would be time for America to sort of leave, leave the peninsula. Well, well, that's a big, that's a big deal, right? Because that's like changing alliances and, um, and, and these sorts of things. But why should the Americans leave? If, if South Korea has decided to become a nuclear power, I think it's absolutely the wrong thing to disengage with them. We should engage with them and help them so that it's done safely, reliably, in a responsible way, and that it's effective for their, uh, their, uh, their needs. Essentially, well, let's own it and shape it because it's kind of inevitable we're not going to, we're losing the, the extended deterrence issue. So I think it's important to, to look at this from a different perspective. If they want to proliferate, uh, then uh, a lot of folks out there will say, it, then we need to sort of, I don't know, punish them by sort of leaving the peninsula. And the reality is, if we do that, we sort of give up any ability to control or influence how that happens. I think the answer is you embrace it and you try to, to do it in a great, controlled and safe manner. Don't run away. Help them. You know, it's interesting that you should say that just from my own experience, having spent some time working in South Korea, 
I can tell you, you know, we started out providing defense for South Korea. Now the South Korean military is sufficiently capable that part of our, our main, you know, activity there is constraining the South Koreans. So when the incident where the North Koreans were shelling Waipido Island or where they sank the Chonan, uh, it was us constraining the South Koreans who wanted to act and act aggressively because they're confident. And, you know, it's, it's very interesting because I know Jim was, you know, he's retired army FA 52. So he wasn't, you know, he was a nuclear guy for the army and back, you know, Jim's he's getting up there in years. So he was around for the cold war. And so Jim was in Korea. I know this for a fact. Jim was in South Korea at the time that we decided to pull nuclear weapons back. So Jim sort of knows and understands what it means for South Korea to have nuclear weapons, uh, you know, in on the pen. So Jim, let me bring you in. How do you see uh, this playing out? And what do you see as sort of the big issues at play here? And before you do that, let me read specifically before he comes in, I'm going to read what president Yun said. He says, it's possible that the problem gets worse and our country will introduce tactical nuclear weapons or build them on our own. If that's the case, we can have our own nuclear weapons pretty quickly, given our scientific and technological capabilities. Now, Jim, it's all you. Well, Adam, thank you for that great uh, review <laughs> of my uh, my seniority on this panel. And I won't hold your age and inexperience against you. Not this election. Um, so <laughs> bring about my right, old Ronald Reagan once again. So you know. So first of all, yes, I've been on the on, on the Korean Peninsula uh, several times uh, in a variety of exercises, and I have a a severe respect and admiration of the Korean people. I loved it when I was there. They were the, uh, it was just a, an incredible time for me to be there back in the nineties, back when, back in the eighties, when they had the, um, uh, the Olympics there, I saw a sea change in the country. It was all for the better. It was wonderful to be there. So, Anyang Haseo to all those that are listening from Korea. But let me say up front, you talked about this idea of, well, if we have nuclear weapons on the peninsula, we'll have more of an arms race, I think you said it, or maybe Curtis said it. And I I know I read recently from uh, the, the uh, Nuclear Zero folks, whatever they call themselves, um, that they said, you know, this could lead to more weapons and be more dangerous. Well, wasn't it that when we pulled our nuclear weapons out of Korea, that then on the Korean Peninsula, somebody started developing nuclear weapons? Sounds like we became a little more dangerous when we pulled out and signed those treaties. So I want to start with that as the first step. The second step is that I agree that it sounds like Korea is saying, we not we're not sure that extended deterrence is going to help us, and we can uh, we can do this on our own. And the Korean people um, have developed their own nuclear reactors. Not the reactors, nuclear reactors, and nuclear weapons are the exact same thing, but a lot of cross technology. 
a lot of development is there. The scientific effort is there. And I think the challenge to doing, to, to building their own nuclear weapon, uh, um, their own nuclear weapons, the science is there, the capabilities there. I think they've got that down. I do see a, a testing and evaluation is going to be a difficult part for the Koreans. And they're going to have to overcome that in some fashion. They want to go on their own. And I think we've, we as a country have sort of put them in that situation though, because again, where, where are we with our weapons? Why, why I was surprised when we, when we started the, this conversation, why someone said, uh, and again, I think it was Curtis who said, you know, it's been a long time and now it's finally coming. I'm surprised it's taken this long. We should have been doing, you know, they should have been doing this and we should have been discussing this in the 1990s. Uh, late nineties because it was coming and, you know, we saw it coming. So uh, those are my, you know, initial comments back to you there, Adam. Yeah. I mean, and you brought up a couple of good points about, you know, like where would you actually I always bring up good. points. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, one of my questions is where would you have, you know, where is your, you know, your white sands missile range? Where is your, Nevada test site, you know, you know, if you're the Russians in Kazakhstan during the cold war, or you're the Chinese and you're, you know, you're out in Xinjiang for the South Koreans, they don't really have that, that sort of an area where they can operate and where they can test nuclear weapons. So I would think they would have to choose simple and mature designs uh, that they can guarantee would work without testing it, but like you said, they, they clearly have, the, you know, they're like the Japanese in the sense that they have all the technological knowledge and capability to build the weapon quickly. But, you know, as, as we've talked what? about on previous shows, building pits, you know, is sort of a very hard part. Yeah, but Curtis, but Curtis was right in saying that Curtis was right in saying that they can, this is where the U S can actually be, of great assistance and great help because they have this quandary doesn't mean they can't start or even begin to develop a program, but we could work in collaboration with them. And, you know, for those that say this is an arms race, I go back again and say, when did the arms race start nuclear arms race start on a peninsula who started building first? When did that NPT really, you know, was, uh, you know, signing on, when did that really pay off? Here's again, I'll state what I did last time. I'll like, turn it back to Sam, but here's your peace dividend once again. <laughs> yeah, that was 1991 when they we saw signed that agreement that nobody was going to develop nuclear weapons and the and build pits on the Korean Peninsula. But my, I was thinking about this. You know, you talk about you know a lot more about the the technological aspects of this. In, in reading over some things in the last couple of weeks, I, I came across one article that indicated that the South Koreans could potentially create nine pits per year and expand that out to 25 per year in a very short time. You know, so my first thought is how realistic is that evaluation from what you know? And... You know, as we're as we're thinking about this, and you know, if they're going to build these, again, 
do they have to actually, I mean, because these are other questions I was reading. Do, do we think they actually have to withdraw from the NPT if they do this? Well, certainly if you yeah, do it Sam, openly. Yeah, Sam, I, 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 won't, I won't address the number of pits, but I just will say it is, it's, there's going to be about a two-year time frame for them to make the plutonium do the separation. There's a, there's a lot of work. They, the South Koreans... Uh, decided, and, and here's where you get into politics and a little bit of the diplomacy, because South Korea got into the nuclear world with nuclear reactors and building their own technology, but they decidedly um, went to an approach where they didn't do their own separation, and that's um, and and that becomes an issue for South for South Korea. How do you obtain the material? And if you listen to my uh, nuclear knowledge podcast, by the way, from NIDS. <laughs> I'll mention, I mentioned the fuels and that is the, that is a major control on how you get fuel, you know, how you get to a nuclear weapon, control how the fuel is developed because it is at the, it, it is the long pole in the tent. Uh, from, from there, I think it, it gets a, you know, gets a little bit easier, especially with the technologies that you may have without any other details. You know, one thing we haven't talked about is if the South Koreans were to ask the United States we want you to return nuclear weapons to the pen, to the peninsula. And that is, you know, actually, you know, in my Air Force time, we contemplated that. How would we do it? So, you know, the Air Force, the DOD have thought about these things. How would you do it? Because you have to think, you know, you, you've you decommissioned the weapon storage areas that were there. Uh, you'd have to, you know, do something to, to store weapons you know, what do you, you're going to have to put dual capable aircraft on the pin. Where do you put them? You know, which of your air bases do you put them at to, you know, what targets are you more likely to potentially try to strike? Therefore, what kind of range do you have? Cause you're not refueling aircraft. You got to look at, you know, bringing your, you know, you've got to have capability for suppression of enemy air defenses, your seed capabilities, all of that. This is part of what makes the DCA mission in Europe so difficult is not just flying aircraft with nuclear weapons on them, but you've got your conventional support, CISNO and RISNO, conventional support uh, for this mission and the reconnaissance for the mission. And it's, it's not that easy. And so the, the air force would probably have this mission or if we had the submarine launched, cruise missile nuclear slick them in then you could say hey the navy's going to handle that mission uh but we we don't so therefore it's likely to have to be an air force mission which means you're going to have dca on the pen so you know what's how would the u.s and you know for you curtis as you've been you know twittering it as you've been on the twitter and you've been reading and, and talking to to the folks out there. How do you see and what do people think about the potential for a return of U.S. nuclear weapons to South Korea? Well, uh, I, I think it's it's a it's it's a it's D, it's DOA uh, because no one's talking about it. Uh, I don't think anybody in the current administration would even entertain it. 
And, uh, and so um, really, I think the pressure now is how do we convince the South Koreans not to do this? And oh, by the way, stop talking about it. And, then, and this is unfortunate because just in the conversation alone, you are creating a deterrence message here. Um, you are, the, this, is, this kind of talk is what makes the Chinese wake up. It's what makes the North Koreans wake up and go, oh, maybe I'm pushing just a little too far. Uh, preach it, little, Curtis, preach it. Right. Or a little, I'm pushing a little too hard. Last year, 2022, the, the North Koreans conducted over 80 ballistic missile tests, right? Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so that is what becomes overwhelming. And then you're, and not only are you, you're, you're communicating to the South Koreans, your, your capability, but you're, you're upsetting the Japanese as you're shooting them over their country. And so you really are forcing these two countries uh, together to think about uh, how you're going to get here. You, you cannot continue to go to a, uh, to, you know, take a knife to a gunfight. And at some point in time, you got to realize you're living in a community where three of your neighbors are nuclear superpowers, right? And I'm not even counting the Americans. And, and this, is a, this is a challenge. And you're going to have to, at some point in time, decide when are you going to, to, to join that community. And, and so uh, that, that, that time is now. That conversation has finally arrived. And, um, and, and that's the challenge. To Jim's point, uh, and I think his point was, was just very astute in that it is amazing that the things that, that the West does to, if you will, denuclearize, to de-escalate potential uh, in, in anywhere around the world, in anything you're talking about, how it often has this opposite reaction with, the, with adversaries, because weakness is provocative. And when you, when you open the door with this kind of weak communication, it, it, it invites them to fill this vacuum, if you will, and to, to come in and bring in their strength and then begin to coerce um, uh, their neighbors. So I think this is, uh, this is what we're seeing here is, a, is, is an ally, a democracy, someone who's living in a bad neighborhood that's kind of waking up going, I'm tired of getting pushed around and I'm not seeing a lot of help from the landlord. And so I'm going to have to take matters into my own hands and, uh, and assert my own national interests here. I have a right to do that. And we should never allow um, treaties uh, to, to circumvent our, our, our own secret, uh, security and sovereignty. Uh, you know, we bailed out of the ABM treaty in, in 2002 uh, because we needed to do something against this same North Korean threat. Why should we, some, why should we um, um, vilify the South Koreans because they decide they've got to withdraw from a treaty because it no longer serves their security and sovereignty? Jim? Yeah, uh, Adam, I know you like to ask the questions, but Mike, <laughs> is, I'm the technology guy, so I'm interested in the deterrence effect. I'm sort of interested what Sam and, and Curtis might say, as I've thought about if South Korea begins building, remember this, the, we, we already have the extended deterrence, so it's not like there is no nuclear coverage. So if they begin to build nuclear weapons, what are they deterring in doing that? What is the deterrent effect that they're going after, in your opinion? Go for well, it, Sam. Yeah. Uh, 
the the question is really is do they believe in the extended deterrence and the umbrella offered by the United States? You know, all of the missile defense systems, the, the theater level high altitude stuff, um, how much is that going to deter North Korea from utilizing the weapon systems available to them? And do the South Koreans really believe that we would use that? And in addition to that, that we would use nuclear strikes of our own against the North Koreans. And, you know, what Curtis's comments and stuff were just spot on. The South Koreans don't really are looking like they don't really believe that our extended deterrence is going to cover them. So when you say, what are they, what are they actually going to be deterring? Well, they want to deter those three neighbors that have nuclear weapons because they think that we're not going to do it for them. Well, so let me ask a, a sort and, of... And if we, we take away, slick them in. We take away things that we know could be useful in giving reassurance to the, to the South Koreans. So what do we have? What have we said with our last nuclear posture review, with the, the strategy papers and everything? What have we said that offers any reassurance to the South Koreans that we're really there for them? Sam, I like your near Floydian strip, the Floydian <laughs> slip there. Freudian. Wow, that was really bad. Yeah, so the Freudian slip that you made there and that you said assuring the North Koreans, because I'd like to assure them that, uh, <laughs> that we're, we're ready and, and willing to move, and that's the way it should be, right? I did come close there. Can I offer an analogy and ask, is this the right analogy? Because, you know, all analogies are wrong, but some of them are useful. So is this sort of like an instance in which a husband and wife are sitting in church and the preacher is, you know, preaching his sermon and the wife elbows the husband in the rib because she thinks the, you know, the preacher's talking about something the husband needs to fix. Is, is that sort of, is President Yun, is he sort of elbowing the United States in the rib saying, hey, you know, you, you might want to think about this. Because, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I elbow my wife in, you know, in a quite a bit when the preacher's talking, you know, Hey honey, you need to do this better. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I just, I sort of wonder what was the message less garnered towards, you know, the North Koreans or the Chinese. It certainly was. I don't think it was directed towards the Japanese an old adversary, but was it, was it really a, a message to us, you know, that, the, that the South Koreans are feeling a little unprotected. So I, I offer that to you, Curtis. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a, a very astute observation. Uh, I think um, it definitely is a message. Um, you know, a cry for help, I'm not sure, but it's definitely a me- It was a warning. It was a shot across our political bow, right? Saying, hey, we are a close ally. We are an economic partner and we are feeling uncomfortable. Right. So Dennis Healy was the prime minister or was the defense minister of the UK, I think, back in the 70s. And he came, coined the Healy theorem, which was it only takes 5% of your effort to deter an adversary, but it takes 95% of your effort to assure an ally. 
And what he was what he was saying was, is in order for you to assure uh, soul that you're willing to trade, I don't know, San Francisco for soul, um, you've got to really convince them of that. And I'm not sure they're that convinced anymore. Uh, you know, up to 2009, we had TLAM ends floating around the wall. You know, we had you know, bombers here and there, and we, we do these different things, but there are, we're not assuring them in a, in a way that they feel comfortable. And you know what? They get a vote in this. If we want to say that we're in the business of extended deterrence, we need to make sure that we have the capability and the capacity full spectrum to meet their perceived needs. And if we're not going to do that, then we ought not to say that we're in the business of extended deterrence. What we're in the business with right now with regard to North Korea is because they've developed capabilities to reach out and touch San Francisco, we're spending a a lot of energy and money and effort on ballistic missile defense. That's all fine. I'm not criticizing that. But in the end, what we're really concerned about is that, is whether or not they're going to get here. I think what the South Koreans are realizing is, is they they need a military that has the capability to push the offense onto, onto the North and not just have this defensive capability all the time. They need to have the ability to inflict deterrence by punishment. And I don't think they feel like they have that right now. And maybe acquiring nukes or at least having them nearby that are maybe still American nukes is the thing that they need to ensure they can communicate that message. Yeah, it, you very well could be right, because the, the big question, will you use strategic nuclear weapons against North Korea if they were to, for example, pop off a nuclear weapon in in South Korea? And, it, and it's worth noting, the North Koreans have the largest special forces of any country in the world. And they have, you know, they have penetrated South Korea such that if a you know an actual hot war kicks off, there's going to be a lot of bad stuff happen in South Korea at the very beginning because of you know this this large volume of North Korean special forces that have infiltrated the you know the South and could could they you know could they bring an, a nuclear weapon into South Korea possibly might that be how such a weapon is used and then how does the U.S. respond to that? So, and let me give Jim, because we're, we're out of time, but let me give Jim the final word. Well, thanks for the final word. Yeah, I, I again, I, I look at this as a rather interesting conundrum uh, that South Korea has been put into. And we didn't even touch on a few of the comments made by our special guest, uh, uh, Dr. Christine Leah, who said, you know, when we when we look at the entire you know when we look at the entire region, when you start thinking about how are we going to protect Taiwan and Japan and Australia, you know things start to thin out a little bit. And so I can see where you know someone in the region is is looking around saying we've got to do this you know a bit a bit more on our own. And it may not be a bad uh, initial gesture and for perhaps even a full up. A process, but I, I, I'm just going to say it's not going to be just easy to do. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to take a national effort, and there is going to be some political, unfortunate uh, political or di- diplomatic, however you want to look at it, pushback from various countries who uh, will not see this as a positive move. 
And I think the U.S. has to be very clean on this. Go ahead, Curtis. I know you gave you got the last word, but I got to get the last, last word. So when, when Pakistan was developing their nuclear weapons, their quote was, they will eat grass if that's what it takes. And if you're a nation that knows that you need a capability to ensure your survival, ensure your sovereignty, you will do what it takes. Just look at, you know, Pakistan is a fine example of that. Yep. Very, very good. Thank you for that last word. All right. Well, I want to thank the panel today, Sam Stanton, Curtis McGiffin, and Jim Petrosky for joining us on this episode of The Nuclear View. And of course, as always, we want to thank you, the listeners, for joining us. And we hope you found something of today's podcast interesting and informative. And we look forward to having you on the next podcast. Thank you, Terrence.